Hello, everyone, and welcome to Global Gurus, where every Friday we explore stories of international business and speak with industry leaders operating around the world. I'm your host, Philip Auerbach of Auerbach International. Thank you for joining us. If you're tuning in for the first time, we start each podcast with a running segment called Faux Pas Fridays, in which we explore a funny blooper or a mistranslation that does not quite convey the professional image that your organization wants to project. And since today's guest teaches people about self-publishing, I thought it would be more appropriate to give an example of how meanings in English can change when words are used incorrectly or put in the incorrect order. So for example, an actual reason for an auto insurance claim stated, I was on my way to the doctor with rear end trouble when my universal joint gave way, causing me to have an accident. Today's guest is Dave Chesson. Uh, in addition to his business background, he's fluent in Mandarin and has worked, uh, has been the chief of the Office of Defense Cooperation, which sells U.S. military equipment to allied countries. He's lived in uh, Canada, Korea, the Maldives, Taiwan, and Sri Lanka. And in addition, he is the creator of Kindlepreneur.com. This is a website devoted to teaching advanced book, book marketing, which even Amazon Kindle Direct Publishing acknowledges as one of the best, best in the business. And it tells its users to gain insight from Kindlepreneur on how to opti optimize marketing for your own books. Having worked with such authors as Orson Scott Card, Ted Decker, and others, his tactics help both fiction and nonfiction authors of all levels get their books discovered by the right readers. He's also the creator of Publisher Rocket, a book marketing software, and Atticus, a writing and formatting software. Welcome, Dave. Glad you're with us. Well, thank you for having me. Now, before we begin, perhaps you could tell us a bit more about your background and how you grew up and how you gained your global experience. Sure. Well, I guess the best place to start was uh, right out of college. I went in, um, I became an officer in the Navy. Uh, I did nuclear engineering on submarines, did that for about two and a half, three years, then transferred over to the military diplomacy where I became uh, fluent in Mandarin Chinese and got my master's degree in East Asia. After that, the military just started sending me around to places. I went from being a uh, uh, liaison to helping in defense cooperation and then uh, kind of being in charge of certain countries for that. Um, but ultimately, I got out of the military with 11 years active duty, uh, moved to Franklin, Tennessee. It was during the time that I was in Korea that I actually started building an online business. I started writing books and self-publishing them. I started building Kindlepreneur, started learning about search engine optimization and SEO, um, and kind of just built multiple businesses from there. So the moment that I got out of the military, it was an easy transition. And now I get to work from home. I've been doing this for six, seven years, coming up on seven years, uh, working full-time online. It's fantastic. Wow. So. Uh, do you have a virtual company or is there an actual office with the other employees? All of them are virtual, which is great because we did that way before COVID. Um, so the moment COVID happened, it was business as usual for our operations. Right. Um, you know, I'd been using Zoom for like five or six years. And every time I'd be like, hey, let's use Zoom. Some of you like, you mean Skype? <laughs> You know, and I'm like, no, no, there's something better. Now, after COVID, all of a sudden, everybody uses Zoom. Nobody uses Skype. I'm like, all right, well, there you go. <laughs> Finally happened. But I like to say I was using Zoom before it was cool. <laughs> That's great. Absolutely. 
um, yeah, I know the virtual model very well myself with uh, my two enterprises also. So um, when a person says international business, what does that mean to you? Especially, for example, since you're in publishing, if a person sells a book overseas, is that international business or is it much more than that? I think, uh, you know, directly, yes. Um, truth be told is, is that as we become more digital, uh, international business starts to really gray out. Um, the fact of the matter is you could sell anything with the intention of selling it in a, in a domestic market, and yet it can easily be applied and sold uh, in foreign markets. For example, when I published one of my first books, I never did anything to try to push my book in, in J the Japan market. And yet all of a sudden I was, some of my books were selling there. Um, and Interesting enough, we started getting uh, Japanese and Chinese customers contacting us about things, opportunities, or uh, things they liked. And so it quickly brought me into a sec uh, international business, even though I was really focusing on a domestic business. So I'd reiterate by saying the more digitized the world gets, you know, I would say international business almost becomes a part of everything. It's no longer, you could be in just thinking you're selling something in this one locale uh -huh. and because of everything you're being forced into seeing it as a global component instead of just a domestic component. That's true. Especially with books where you do have immediate appeal from other countries. Yep. Books, software, uh, any digital product courses, all yep. of it. Um, tell me a bit more about Kindlepreneur and the kinds of uh, customers you serve or the kinds of authors you serve and where they market to. Sure. Well, I gained a very in-depth knowledge on search engines. Um, and that could be like Google is the big famous one. But the other one that I really studied on was Amazon because Amazon mm -hmm. is a search engine. You go to it, you type something in and it presents you with a list of products. When I was writing books, I was always curious as to why Amazon would choose to show one book over another. And I thought to myself, you know, if I could figure this out, uh, and understand why they do what they do, I could get them to show my book more often to their customers. And I like this idea because if Amazon was actively helping to sell my books, that's a better situation than me having to actively try to sell my books. Right. So I really dug into them and I realized that nobody was writing about that. So because of it, I created Kindlepreneur.com. Uh, that's like Kindle Entrepreneur, Kindlepreneur. Um, and just started chronicling all the things that I was doing and how I was able to get Amazon to sell my book more often, have it get discovered by more shoppers. Uh, and over time, it grew to one of the largest book marketing uh, websites. And it's got a huge following and it's been, it's been a lot of fun. And so we're constantly teaching both self-published authors and published authors um, you know, how to, how to create their books, write their books and, uh, publish them and market them. And so that's Kindlepreneur in a nutshell. And most of your authors are American selling in the United States. You have foreign authors as well. Generally speaking, the majority are in the United States, but it's surprising how many we have that are foreign, um, you know, looking for the opportunity. I mean, if you imagine there are certain countries in the world where if that person were to sell one or two hundred dollars worth of books a month, uh, they'd be set. And so there's a lot of desire on, you know. Uh, taking their English skills, creating a book and trying to find a way for it to have, you know, to enter in the market. Uh, but we also do write a lot about international marketing uh, for books as because an author in the United States, uh, 
if they've created a great book, they've got a wonderful opportunity to then have that book translated and have it sold, you know, in the German market or the UK market, or the Japanese. Um, these are all markets that are right. The other thing too is publishing companies in those countries will come to uh, US self-published authors and say, hey, this is a great book. Would you mind selling us the rights to the book in just our country? Right. Uh, this is an incredible opportunity for those authors because, for example, I had this, this buddy of mine, his name was Stephen Geis, and he wrote this great book on mini habits. And it sold parentally. It's done extremely well. The Japanese, there was a Japanese publisher came to him and was like, hey, we'd like to buy the rights. So he you know what? Okay. So we sold the rights um, and they created this book cover and he looked at the book cover. And he's like, ah, this is awful. Like, this is so boring. And they're like, no, 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 it's okay. We want it to be as clean and sterile as possible. And he was like, that sounds terrible. So they took the book and it became like the number three bestseller in all of Japan. Wow. They didn't change his writing. They just changed the way it was marketed. And let me tell you, both sides made a lot of money from that. Mm. And that's the key. The Japanese publisher knew what the Japanese market wanted. They knew this would be a good book. They just did their thing to it. And they created a cover where in America, that cover would have just been terrible. But in Japan, it fit what people wanted when they were thinking about mini habits and improving themselves. And it was a knockout. So we do cover a lot of cases like that and how authors can take advantage of that. That's fantastic. Yeah, one of the keys of international business, of course, is I call it acculturation or cultural adaptation. And um, whether it's the name of a product or the name of a company, a product, a tagline, a slogan, whatever, or simply the design, obviously the book design, the packaging, um, the pricing, of course, is separate, but the packaging often is very critical. The colors that are used, the, the um, graphics, this is all critical because each market sees things differently. Exactly. Uh, you know, it's funny is, is that when I was in the military, we had to go to a lot of parties, um, you know, or dinner events and understanding how to interact with that other side was always incredible. Um, you know, it's just the customs or how you drink or when you drink or if you don't drink and if you do drink too much. Is that good or bad? Like, you know, um, but the same thing with, with a product, a book uh, in Japan, that sterile, blase, bland. And I'm not I'm not knocking on what they find, but for them, it was a clean, you know, um, book. It was tidy. It was, you know, it wasn't flashy. And that for them was was big. And so, like I said, you know, it comes from your 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 brand name, your colors, all of that. It can be a big part when you go international. Uh, perhaps you could give some examples, <clears throat> excuse me, examples of, um, you know, the different kinds of etiquette that you're talking about with parties and drinking or eating and greeting people and so forth. What, what have you found, for example? Well, a major part of this was always military uh, for me. And so, Usually what would happen is, is like one of our admirals would come to meet with, say, the other countries, the host nations admiral. And my job was to make sure that the admiral didn't get into trouble, uh, <laughs> you know, didn't do something stupid or, um, you know, didn't break protocol or do something taboo. So I brief them all the things. And the other thing, too, is my, it was also my job to make sure the other admiral got so drunk that he had to bow out. 
Well, because if you think about it, right, it's a big power play. They get you there. They want, you know, if if they get our admiral like totally blitzed and he's got to hang over the next meeting, you know, he's going to be sheepish and that puts him on his heels. Right. Uh, and I mean, these are allies. We're not we're not trying to really hose each other over, but it comes down to uh, doing this. And so my job was to always sort of undercut a power play. Um, for example, in South Korea, uh, they. Hey, they don't eat live octopus all the time. It is not something they do all the time. But every time our U.S. admirals would show up, it would be the main course. There it is, uh, live octopus. And it's not technically live. Uh, what they do is they take the live octopus and they cut it up into all these pieces and then immediately bring it out. So it's dead, but it like wiggles for two hours. Um, and of course, every American just goes white in the face. And the, you know, the Koreans are over there kind of smiling, you know, like, ah. And so... I would literally do this, this trick and, and the Korean translators would know I do this because I've been through many of these parties. Um, I would grab the chopsticks. I would grab a big hunk of that, that octopus, throw it in my mouth and uh, like pretend I chewed twice and then swallow. Like I'd pretend I swallowed every one of the Koreans went super white in the face and like just about lost it. And the reason for that is that every year, 2.5 Koreans die from live octopus because they chew, they don't chew it enough and it chokes them from the inside. So I'd play that against them, pretend I was choking and they would all like, and immediately the powered, you know, the paradigm shifted when I let a little piece of the octopus stick out, you know, wiggling and be like, just kidding. Um, and it was just, it was just what, just one way to take away that whole, you know, and just swing it back at them. And at that point we get back into the, uh, into eating. So there was that. I also feel like every time we would go to these military dinners, no matter where it was Thailand, Taiwan, Sri Lanka, it was always something. The Thai would bring the like the hottest burn your face off soup possible. Uh, you know, um, <laughs> the Taiwanese would bring out an alcohol to this day that I think could strip the pain off of Buick. Um, and then they would just make you drink it. Um, you know, they all had that thing. So if you could just really kind of get used to it. So I lived in Sri Lanka, so I ate super spicy, hot stuff. And I would go for seconds and thirds on the soup and totally power play them out. Um, you know, with Galiang, I just had to learn how to. So what is Galiang? Galiang is that, uh, is that, uh, terrible, terrible Chinese liquor. Huh. Uh, it's called Galiang in mainland China. And it's called Argo Toe in, uh, Taiwan. And so I just had to learn how to drink that. That is terrible. <laughs> Um, but you do that, you, you know, if they try to do a power play on you, 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 you kind of turn the table on them and, and you show it doesn't, doesn't matter. Uh, as for drinking, that was, that was the hard part. So how to get the other Admiral drunk so that your Admiral felt fine the next day. And so what we did was there's a way where I think it's like almost in every culture, there's a way to isolate the one. And to make them feel obligated to drink, but you pre-set it up with like a bunch of the lieutenants or something like that. It's like, all right, you're going to see me go up and I'm going to you know, go up to the Admiral and I'm in Korea. There's actually this thing where you bring an empty shot glass and some soju, you put it down between you. And then uh, the key is you're not allowed to pour your own drink. So you pour his drink. So then he drinks it and then he wipes the edge of it and then he pours your drink and then you drink it. So that shot, I have now had a shot. The Admiral has had a shot. So then you, you nudge the other lieutenant about five minutes later, he goes over there and he does the same thing. The next one, same thing. And then I do one, the same thing. And then we get a whole table of it. By then I've got five shots in that guy and we've all only had one or two shots total. And that's, that's how you do it. So that'll work that. That's it. So that's, 
military engagement 101 in uh, dinner time parties. <laughs> That's fascinating. Um, what about some of the cultural issues you've encountered, both in your business dealings and military? Uh, other, uh, not not necessarily not necessarily uh, eating or drinking, but interacting with people, different different kinds of business uh, methods, for example. Yeah, uh, one of the big things we Americans are really well known for is being uh, very boisterous and very uh, uh, kind of like cut through red tape with a machete. Yeah, um, correct. We're not as uh, we're not as we're not guarded, you know, but we're also not as honest. And I say honest, that can be a bad thing. Like, for example, again, this is not stereotyping. This is kind of answering the question with experience on it. Sure. Uh, in Korea, they will tell you exactly what they think. And they think that that's the right thing to do. So when I was on the Korean base or so, I literally, I wouldn't even know the dude. Dude come over and be like, oh, you got fat over Christmas. And I'm like, who are you? He's like, oh, you gained a couple pounds. You should go to the gym. And to him, he's being polite by letting me know I'm fat. So when I say honest, I mean like a brutal honest, you know, mm -hmm. because they think it's the right thing to lie to me and not tell me I look fat or disgusting with that shirt on is to disrespect me. And so there's subtleties like that in certain, um, you know, certain cultures. Uh, the Germans are a lot more apt to doing that. The Koreans definitely you go to the opposite side of the spectrum, the Japanese will not tell you what they think. And so you could go into a meeting and that person could be thinking, I hate your guts and I, I do not like being around you. And the whole time they're just sitting there smiling, smiling, you know, and going through what they're doing. Um, so, I mean, it, it's trying to understand that and also understand that you can't just go into some of these meetings and just be like, all right, great. Here's the deal. You guys have this. We want that. We're willing to do this. Let's make it happen. Like some of them, that's terrible. Uh, you know, uh, the other thing too, is just kind of understanding what is a social norm. Um, in China, a big social norm for them is trying is, I guess the best word to put it is trying to take advantage. And that's an okay thing. Like if you're, if you go to the market, okay. And you go to like haggle prices, uh, let's say it's like the equivalence of five bucks and I don't care. Fine. I got five bucks. I don't want to sit here and waste 20 minutes with you haggling this down to $3. Here's five bucks. Like that vendor, even though they just made money, will think a lot less of you because something's wrong. Like you knew you could haggle the price, but you didn't like, mm. you know, and there's a bit of this. Whereas like, if you really bring them down to the point, you know, like to the point, the breaking point, there's almost this whole like, Good for him. You know, like, good. Like he saw that he did that. I get that. You know, um, there's just all these little nuances. And I think it's really important that regardless that you really try to understand a bit of that culture um, with the businesses you're going to work with, understand where they're coming from, what they like to do. You could be thinking you're doing the most effective and efficient thing. And that could really backfire on you. Mm -hmm. um, you know, some cultures really need you to get ingrained. Some cultures would prefer you to just spit out what you're thinking. Uh, these things can really change the paradigm uh, as well as the strategy that goes forth. So understanding that's key. That's fascinating. Um, I know you've got some businesses in Sri Lanka. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yep. And what kind of businesses are they and what kind of issues have you encountered 
either setting them up or, or dealing on a regular basis with them. Yeah. So uh, one of the companies is a, is a software development company. Um, and another one is a software company that my software development company built. Um, and that software company is actually a job applicant tracking system. So like an ATS, think like workable or greenhouse.io, uh, but we made it a lot more um, cost effective. And so we focus on South Asia and Africa. Hmm. And were there issues in setting up the business differences and how you would do it there versus here? or hiring people or running it? Well, when I, so I was actually stationed in Sri Lanka, which is where I was able to gain some very strong relationships uh, with people that I absolutely trust. And so we started building things together. And, um, you know, at that point, it was really just a phenomenal opportunity for myself. But now looking back at it, Sri Lanka is an excellent place. Um, and I think it's kind of like a diamond in the rough. The you know, Sri Lanka is that that island, the teardrop of India, as they call it, but it's just south of India. Um, people like friends of mine that are like, hey, I want to go to India to go visit. I'm like, don't do it. Go to Sri Lanka. It's way better. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you have what is considered by Westerners an Indian culture. Um, it is a very clean country compared to India. So there's a lot less pollution, a lot less um, it's a lot less crowded. Uh, the capital city of Colombo is a great city. Most of them speak English there. So you really don't have to worry about it. You'll still get your tuk-tuk drivers that try to, you know, con you out of some money or something like that. But I mean, I actually feel very safe there. Um, you know, I've never felt in danger. I've never felt that there was really a problem. And the other thing too, is they've got a lot of great skilled workers. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of garment factories there. I know that, uh, Lululemon, um, Banana Republic, uh, Victoria's Secret create a lot of their garments out of there. Um, I'll bet you if you start looking at the back of your tag, you'll see Sri Lanka listed on a couple of things that you got in your own closet. Also, also too, they have, um, Excellent programmers. It's a phenomenal area for it. Um, it's also a lot cheaper uh, to be able to do software out of there. So they're very capable. Um, and there's a lot of industries that they do well. So especially if you're building software, or you're doing something digital, working out of a country like that is a lot more cost effective. And it, it's a great opportunity. The hard part is that they're literally on the other side of the world. So right now, it is, you know, in this case, it's 1.30 p.m. Um, it would be midnight tomorrow, their time. You know, it's literally I subtract an hour and a half and then switch a.m. to p.m. And that's what it is. Right. Uh, so I have to do a lot of meetings at like 6 a.m. to like 9 a.m. with my counterparts in Sri Lanka because that's, you know, 4.30 p.m. to, you know, 7 p.m. their time. Um, and... So I do run into that sometimes with software too. During the day, we might have a bug or an issue and I've just got to wait until they all wake up. You know, I can't uh, deal with that bug in the moment. Um, so there's a lot more organization that we as a, as a company have to have. We have to really prepare all of our, you know, support tickets and, and programming cards ready mm-hmm. to communicate with the programmers so that they get everything they need so they can fix it while we sleep. And then it's, you know, the switch uh, system. So there's that. The other thing that I run into with Sri Lanka is, I swear, I think they have the most holidays in the world. I think somebody somebody actually looked it up. It was like, they're the seventh most holidays in the world go to Sri Lanka. Because uh-huh. they acknowledge everyone's. 
Um, I was once given them uh, the U.S. embassy in Sri Lanka had to put a stop on it because it was so bad that they were like, we can't do this. So they acknowledge, like they literally said, we'll acknowledge these Sri Lankan holidays, but everything is just U.S. holidays because there's a lot of Sri Lankans that work at the U.S. embassy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what they do is they just acknowledge every religion's holidays as well as their national holidays and some foreign national holidays. And that just makes it where it's like every week there's at least a day off somewhere. Um, you know, I, I think the funniest thing was, is that for Christmas, which, by the way, they're uh, a Buddhist country, right. uh, a majority Buddhist. Uh, I think like maybe 10 percent of the country is Christian, if that. Uh, and they get three days off for Christmas. I was like, man, when I was in the military, we only got two. How does that work? So, uh, you know, it's like, you guys got three. There's only like 10% of you that actually care. And the best part was the others, the others, especially that were Buddhists in my organization were like, yeah, Merry Christmas. I'm like, whatever. (laughs) Yeah, you go take off. So. Um, What about issues of productivity compared to the United States or cultural assumptions about, um, you know, Americans, for example, would expect you to be on time and expect you perhaps to be direct. You're talking about this to some extent. Um, just those kinds of business issues. Yeah, that is a very important part, um, you know, to business. I think that the most, but the way that to counter that is having good middle, middle management. Um, and that can sometimes be the hardest thing to find. I've always told people you can find some uber talented programmers, uh, you know, or textile work workers in Sri Lanka. Uh, there, I think again, there are other industries. It's just not my jam. So I don't know, but, um, but finding that really good middle management that does a great job that understands that can communicate with clients, you know, on the other side of the world, that's like the diamond in the rough. And so that's, what's really important for us to find is people who can really lead the teams, uh, to create great products, communicate with us on the other side of the world, um, and do that for a, a sustainable period of time. Fascinating. Yeah. Um, do you have uh, businesses in other parts of the world, other countries? Uh, no, but like I said, the rooster.org, which is the applicant tracking system, we do a lot in Africa as well as mm-hmm. South Asia. Um, so it's it has people in those areas, but we we center it out of Sri Lanka. That's HQ, the home home port. Um, and did you have to change the change the software, change the uh, the model in some way to do business in these other countries? Luckily, no. But the gateway entry, or I call it the gateway drug. I'll just call it what it is. Uh, the gateway drug to getting onto the system has to change. So one of the strategies that we used was. Um, the applicant tracking system is the same, but then what we do is we go into these countries and build like a monster.com, you know, the equivalence of a job board. Cause in a lot of these countries, they use something that looks like Craigslist for their job boards. Uh, and then we build this dynamic, you know, great place to like build a uh, job postings and apply for jobs. And then those companies that use that, then they start learning about ATSs and they start using them. And so that's really like I said, that's how we get them to learn about this first world technology and really apply it in their business and see why, you know, American companies use ATSs. Uh, the the reason why uh, they I'm haven't sorry. heard about it or they I'm don't do it. ATS is what applicant tracking system. Um, okay. Um, the reason why 
they don't use them is because they're like $3,000 a month starting, you know, they're extremely expensive. Um, so it's not something to go for. So we just created Uber cheap and just make it something a part of their operations. The next thing you know, they're all just signing up for it. So amazing. It's really incredible. Um, what do you like to do when you're not doing business? Uh, I like to read a lot of books. Um, I also got three monkeys at home, uh, three children. Uh, one of them is actually graduating from college, but the other two are 10 and eight. Uh, so I do a lot of coaching, uh, for their sports and, um, yeah, they, they pretty much take up the rest of my time. <laughs> they do. Yeah. Plus marriage. Yep. Um, if you had a chance to give your past self some current advice, thinking back on your previous experiences, what would you tell your current self? Well, I'm not sure I want to tell, I would tell, uh, if I, my past self were talking to me now, yeah, uh, I probably wouldn't tell my past self anything. Uh, I just let it roll. Um, I like how things turned out. I'm also a big fan of sci-fi. So, you know, you think about that whole timeline thing, like what could change, move a chair and, you know, we're all lizard people or something like that. I, no, I just wouldn't tell them anything. I'd be like, dude, you're going to have a fun time. Just go with it. That's great. Um, are there any other, uh, cultural issues or, uh, perhaps examples of ventures that you, you, you started or, or that you know about that didn't work out well? And that you, you learned lessons from. Well, I mean, anybody you talk to that does business, we, we have lots of failed opportunities or things that we did, uh, things that we learned from. Um, there are lots of like niche websites or, you know, stuff that I built in the past. And from that, I've, I've learned and grown. Um, yeah. And the key is, is that it's important that when you do fail, you take that second, you look back or you take necessary time to look back and learn from it. Uh, ask yourself, why did that fail? There was a point in your life you believed this was going to work. Right. Look at what you thought, look at what happened and try to figure out what the disconnect was and so that you don't do it again. Yeah, makes perfect sense. Right. And that's obviously a lesson for any business, domestic or international. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, before we close, is there anything else you'd like to share? No, I, I think that's it. I think um, one thing I will put in there too uh, is that with Sri Lanka, I like to travel there two to three times a year. Mm -hmm. I think it's really important to to have boots on the ground as well as get to know the people. Um, I think last I heard, there's like 183 people uh, that work for um, the combination of those two companies together. And I think I only know like one third of them. But I personally know one third of them. The others, it's just good to be there. It's good to understand what's going on. Last time I went there, uh, found out there were a lot of complications. There are a lot of issues that needed to be addressed. Uh, you know, the Sri Lankan economy, uh, as many economies are doing, is, is just kind of collapsing. Um, and the Sri Lankan rupee is, is falling fast. And uh, it's while, and it was kind of a benefit to the company that I was bringing in US dollars into it for sales, right? Uh, and the US dollar is up here. Whereas yeah. while the Sri Lanka rupee in value goes down, that means that my company was paying them the same rupee 
which means every month, if I got the same revenue from US dollar and I was paying out the same rupee, I was actually making more money every month because the rupee was devaluing so much. And so just being there, you know, and able to talk to them about it, it became very evident that uh, companies that offer to pay in USD are extremely valuable in people's minds. And so we wouldn't have to change um, you know, their particular, like we wouldn't have to really change up what we're doing, but just that little switch there would be huge. Um, and so hearing that we implemented it and, uh, we are now hiring some of the best people because we're one of the only ones that's doing that. So it's like, congratulations. It's like, you get a pay raise every month, you know, sucks that the rupee is devaluing, but you're getting a pay raise. So that'll work. Um, and so that it was really good to find that out and to actually be able to figure out that that was a really good win-win for both situations. So, so are you paying people in dollars then? Yep. We're right. paying people in dollars now. Uh, that's, that's one of the big advantages uh, yeah. for working for that company. And there's not many people doing it. So absolutely. That's incredible. Uh, very obvious and great strategy and tremendous motivator. Yeah. Congratulations yep. on discovering that. Hiring talent is one of the biggest things. You get the right talent, makes life so much easier. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. It's been an incredible pleasure to gain your insights and your amazing background and how you brought it all together in your, uh, in your business life currently. Absolutely. And thank you for having me. So this has been Philip Auerbach. Please join us again next week for another edition of Global Gurus and their stories of international business. Thank you. Thank you.